The title of this evening's talk is Through the Looking Glass, The Reality of No Self. <clears throat> Over a period of years through my childhood and on through adolescence and into the teen years, I had a recurring dream, had it many, many times. And in these dreams, I would be standing, looking at the mirror, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, and looking back and back, smaller and smaller. Myself, looking at myself in the mirror, seeing myself, looking at myself in the mirror, kind of endlessly. And I was amazed, often quite fascinated and quite intrigued at times with this dream. And if I thought about it a lot, I'd get quite perplexed about it. But mostly I was just quite interested. And interested enough that, in fact, it's the only dream that I really clearly remember experiencing from my early years. This dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life, beginning when at the age of 16 I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I was required to write for high school about um, religions other than Judeo-Christian religions. And right then, I had the very distinct feeling of touching into a very deep sense of coming home. And the dream of looking at myself in the mirror, looking in the mirror, <clears throat> became the, gi <coughs> the gist of the direction that my life has followed ever since. With this evening's talk, we'll explore the third of what are called the three characteristics, the three truths of all phenomena. The first being anicca, the constantly changing, impermanent nature of all things, all situations, every relationship, every experience, every phenomena that arises in our body-mind continuum. And the second universal characteristic being <clears throat> all phenomena being dukkha. In other words, in other words, nothing being secure, sustaining, meaning the unsatisfactory nature of everything in this world. Nothing being secure, sustaining in the outer world of experiences or within the inner world of our experiences. This evening we'll begin to explore the not-self nature of it all, the reality 
that for many people seems the most difficult to touch, to know, and to live. And for some, though it may be quite an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of no self may often be fraught with a subtle or maybe more overt fear. In its essence, this third characteristic, the third truth, is so basic, so simple, and that with just a taste of it, it makes life so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing that so many of us are so fearful of stepping through or lifting the thin veil of concept, of an idea, of belief that separates us from the reality of no self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate, solid, and even a static me, I, them, her, that, it. Within the context of our immediate bodily and mental experience and within the imagined context of the possible future or the context of the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished hopes, fears, and beliefs. To let go of the attachment to all of our cherished and clung to self-identities. It's important actually to recognize that in letting go of our attachment, we're not asked to throw our self away or throw our self out. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as our self because it's a bad thing. What's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of, everything we believe to be our self, everything we think of and believe to be other selves, just simply doesn't exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Not even for a moment. Our so-called self is in constant flux. So, in truth, there's nothing to attach to. In truth, there's nothing to cling to. Essentially, all of the Buddha's teachings and practices lead to this. The Buddha refused, actually, to deal with things that didn't lead to the extinction of clinging, to the unreality of self. He didn't want to discuss, refused to deal with, actually, anything that didn't lead to the extinction of suffering. He wouldn't discuss questions that didn't directly, in some way, with understanding, lead to understanding 
the confusion of the, the reasons for the confusion and anguish that we so often experience. He wasn't a teacher of philosophy. He was actually a teacher of what, a life, a teacher of a way of life, a teacher of the practices that directly lead to the experiential understanding of the truth of the way of things. He was a teacher of peace, a teacher of a very practical path to inner peace. The essential aims of the teachings and practices is to look in the mirror at ourself and look with such sincerity, such humility and willingness that we begin to see ourselves more accurately, which translates as beginning to see through ourself by directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves without all the layers of meaning that we invest with things, that we invest things with when we're attached, without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're identified with them. It's actually very simple, but maybe not so very easy. So we're sitting. Pleasant <clears throat> is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is just simply merely unpleasant. Heat is just heat. Pressure is just pressure. Colors, red or yellow or green, is ju are just red or yellow or green. The rising and falling movement of the breath is merely rising and falling. A memory is just a memory. Thinking is merely thinking. All of these occurrences, all of these things are merely, we could say, are just themselves. There are merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Just hot, just cold, just being a person. In the realm of conditional existence, there's no real or no true sustaining happiness. That's in the realm of conditional existence. And in the same vein, there's no real suffering. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self, what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish and confusion. We experience everything. We experience this, we experience that. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only so much? Can we look into the mirror of ourself without investing an interpretation, without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we see? So, for instance, we think in terms of 
my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my friends, my house. And this is how, in part, we create self again and again and again. This is how we see, how we know self. The Buddha had quite an amazing way of turning things around. He taught, in fact, that this isn't seeing self. It's in the understanding that they're not self is seeing self. The mirror of the Dhamma, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing the truth of myself looking at myself in the mirror. If we continue to investigate with willingness and humility, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change. The knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped belief that there's a self and that things belong to a self will gradually untangle, will come undone. When this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally, steadily increase. I'd like to share some words from a woman named Vimala Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students. And I'm not sure if she's still alive, but she was quite a profound and powerful teacher in her own right. And she talks about humility as being an essential ingredient of our practice. And this is what she says. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer the austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is, without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness, Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she says. Can we observe experience? Can we inquire into phenomena without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention. It's only then that the observer, the so-called self, and what is being observed, investigated, are no longer separate no me and it. There's 
just merely rising and falling, merely heat, merely an ache in the chest or a tingling moving through the body, merely a thought arising and passing. No duality as it's sometimes spoken of, not two, just this present moment being known just as it is. It's really only by training oneself again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts, sensations, feelings, mind states, and perceptions as mere impersonal processes that the power of a very deeply rooted egocentric thought, habit, self-centered inclination can be loosened up, broken up, reduced, let go of, and finally eliminated. It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but the actual direct experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know self or not self, no self. And then, finally, or for a moment, it's not all about me and the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine based in the fear of losing something. For a moment, there's nothing, no thing to cling to. For a moment, the heart, the mind, is free. And this is from the Buddha. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma. It's quite a heavy load quite a heavy burden to carry our self around. Our body, the myriad permutations of our thoughts, all of the hopes and fears. We shoulder quite a heavy burden carrying around all the things of life in the form of thoughts, feelings, various perceptions and beliefs. Believing in them that they're mine, me, myself. The burden or the sting of carrying it all with a sense of ownership, with a sense of identification. The Buddha offered the metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake, but you don't pick it up. So there's no poisonous bite. You see it. It's still a snake but the poison hasn't touched you, hasn't gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it, 
therein lies the potential of peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of the things in this world as it's appropriate. We keep looking, we keep seeing, we keep living life. And in fact, living much more freshly and fully right here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher right here in retreat and in our life outside of retreat. For instance, as we lift a cup and fill it with water, as we sit and we notice, as we receive and simply know the gap between the out-breath and the in-breath. This is a, a poem by Buddhist poet Jane Hirschfield. She calls it, Only when I am quiet and do not speak. Only when I am quiet for a long time, do not speak, do the objects of my life draw near. Shy, the scissors and spoons, the blue mug. Hesitant, even the towels, for all their intimate knowledge of scent, the sand scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder, dreaming and waking, the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet there's is not a false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other act of shying of pelted rocks. No, not that, for I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off as I glimpse for even an instant, the actual instant. As if they believed it possible, I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I, not the seeing eye. Our whole life becomes our practice as we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours, that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other, that even this body is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent processes. Do I reside in the belly or the rumbling sensation therein? Is the breath the sensation of the in-breath, me? Am I the foot? Do I reside in the cool, fluid vibration of the foot moving through space? Or the sensation beginning in the heart and spreading through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend? So we might think, okay, well, I'm not the foot, not the, not the sensation of the in-breath, but certainly my mind, certainly my consciousness, that's me. I mean, without my mind, 
without my individual consciousness, who would I be? One of the things most of us cling to quite tenaciously and often quite unwittingly is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. As these next words are spoken, let go of listening with the intellect. Let go of interpreting with the intellect. And just simply open and receive the words, just simply, directly, hearing. Where and what is it that we call mind? Where is the mind? Can you find it? Does the mind have a shape? A color? A texture? Is the mind in the body? Is it coming from somewhere outside the body? Or from somebody else? Do you find anything we could call mind? Am I the mind? Is the mind me? What is the essential nature of mind? Is it different from the nature of body or from the nature of anything? Again, the Buddha, directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary ways of thinking about things upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomena. It too arises and passes away moment by moment. It too is dependent on clinging. It too is dependent on the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that arises because of contact through one of the six sense doors. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thought. It too is dependent on the mental constructs and the labels that arise in the conscious mind through contact. I'd like to um, read you one of the early suttas from the Buddha's teaching. This is his teaching on the characteristic of non-self. And he uh, offered this teaching to the five bhikkhus that he had uh, practiced with earlier on in his life. On one occasion, the Blessed One, as he was called, the Buddha, was dwelling in Varanasi in Deer Park. There the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five. Bhikkhus, material form, is non-self, not self. For if yogis' material form were self, 
this form would not lead to affliction and it would not be possible and it would be possible to have it a form let my form be, th be thus let my form not be thus because material form is not self it leads to affliction because it is not possible to have it of material form let my form be thus let my form not be thus and then he goes through feelings the same way perceptions the same way thoughts the same way and consciousness the same way consciousness is not self for bhikkhus if consciousness were self this conscious consciousness would not leave, lead to affliction and it would be possible to have it of consciousness let my consciousness be thus let my consciousness not be thus but because consciousness is not self consciousness leads to affliction and it is not possible to have it of consciousness let my consciousness be thus let my consciousness not be thus what do you think yogis if material form is is permanent or impermanent impermanent say the say the monks is what is impermanent unsatisfying or satisfying unsatisfactory they respond is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus this is mine this I am this is myself no they answer and then he goes on with feelings the same questions is feeling permanent or impermanent is perception permanent or impermanent are thoughts permanent or impermanent is consciousness permanent or impermanent is what is impermanent unsatisfactory or satisfying unsatisfying they re they respond is what is impermanent unsatisfactory and subject to change fit to be regarded thus this is mine this I am this is myself no they they respond and then the Buddha goes on therefore bhikkhus any kind of material form whatsoever whether past future or present internal or external gross or subtle inferior or superior far or near all material form should be seen as it really is with correct understanding and this is the correct understanding this is not mine this I am not this is not myself and then he goes on with feelings this way perceptions thoughts and consciousness and then he says seeing thus bhikkhus a wise noble disciple experiences dispassion towards material form dispassion towards feeling dispassion towards perception dispassion towards thoughts dispassion towards consciousness becoming dispassionate her or his lust fades away with the fading of lust her or his mind and heart is liberated with the knowledge that it is liberated she or he understands exhausted is birth the holy life has been lived what had to be done has been done there's no more of this suffering to come and it's said that after the Buddha gave this discourse that each of the five bhikkhus became arhants and then there were six enlightened beings in the world
So the selfless nature of all of the various constituents of mind and body, what are called the aggregates, the selfless nature of the aggregates, because they're uncontrollable. We can't bend them to our will. So they really can't be called our self. We don't own them. We can't make them do what we want them to do. They're all subject to change. They're all subject to affliction. Non-self or not-self based on the impermanent and unsatisfactory nature of experiences through any of the sense doors and the impermanent and ultimately unsatisfactory nature of all things, all worldly phenomena. As awakening beings, can we begin to directly experience and know the changing interdependent nature of all things? Begin to see in one Dhamma, in one truth, all truths, all Dhammas. Can we begin to see in all Dhammas the one Dhamma, the one truth? See the one in the many the many in the one. In other words, begin to see in the one the immeasurable flow, the process of life arising, changing and passing, life unfolding, or the over, in the overall ongoing immeasurable flow of life. Can we begin to see the one, the one truth? So again, the mirror of Dhamma. This is from an 8th century Chinese sage. Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially of the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with the myriad and other things in the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all natural things. Knowing this, knowing that I am the same nature, of, of, the, am of the same nature as all other natural things, I know that there's really no separate self, no separate personality, no absolute death, and no absolute life. And a wonderfully simple poem by Jim Harrison. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full sweet flow, to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move into the last part of this evening's talk, I'll offer you two brief guided 
meditations, beginning with the possibility of allowing the mind to open to an image in relationship to the words that I'll be speaking. Or if an image doesn't come easily for you, really simply then just allowing yourself a felt sense, allowing a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words. So beginning with closing your eyes gently and visualizing or sensing on some level an enormous jeweled net. A net of infinite, of boundless proportions. And letting this fill your mind, fill your heart. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems, each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net, while at the same time its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, each jewel contains all other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all of the gems at all of the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. Now let the image or the felt sense just simply dissolve. The intricately interwoven tapestry of life with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of no-self. This is the ground of understanding, the aspect of wisdom of no-self that compassion springs from. One of the two wings, we could say, that we which with, with which we fly free. As we awaken, we more and more often act only from the heart of compassion because of the growing and pervading clarity of understanding that there's only relationship, 
There's only interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. There's no separate, no isolated, no independent you. No separate me. And this is from Shantideva, a century Buddhist monk. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And now the second guided meditation. In the mind's eye, so to say, visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless sky or sky-like space. And just relaxing Relaxing and staying open and present with this. Now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. The clouds are moving, changing shape, dissolving, new clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization or felt sense, just simply let the mind rest in the openness of the sky. Let the heart rest in the space, not fixating on any cloud just simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away. If at any point all the clouds disappear, simply allow the mind to rest in the vast, clear, empty, endless, sky-like space. And now let the image fade away. And just sit for a moment, letting the mind open wide letting awareness be spacious, not fixing any edges to it. And now for a moment, quickly turn the awareness around to look at itself, not looking for anything, just aware of awareness itself, just knowing the knowing.
Who knows? And now bringing the attention back into the body, back to the breath, back to hearing, back to this moment, here and now. As we learn to step back, so to say, and open up and face the looking glass with a willingness and a humility, we begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in. We keep looking, whether we're standing, sitting, moving, or lying down. Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. And we see that everything, all things, are arising, changing, and passing away. We see that because of this, there's no thing that's satisfied, no thing that brings pleasure, joy, ease in an ongoing, sustained way. We understand that we really can't depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum or the world around us to make us really, truly happy and at ease. And we continue to just simply, humbly look into the mirror of ourself, looking in the mirror. And going back and back into this mirror of ourself. Awareness becomes more and more open, more all-encompassing, more spacious back and back to the source of itself, back to the source of all things. And instead of finding something solid, static, something separate, some solid I, solid me, some fixed eternal entity, we instead get back to this vastness, this bright spaciousness of mind, spaciousness of being. And in this there's no I or no other, no two, no duality. In this emptiness, this essential emptiness, there's an ease, the equipoise of the deepest ease of well-being. Even in the midst of all the arising, changing, and passing happenings of life within and all around. As long as we're in the realm of I, me, mine, and other, we're residing somewhere next door to reality. 
and it creates huge problems, really the greatest problems, the greatest suffering we experience. We have a sense of being separate, being an isolated, separate entity. This is really the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering, the core loneliness that human beings feel. And I wanted to share a story with you um, about a friend of mine, a true story. A friend who, in his 40s, um, who was suffering with this kind of core loneliness. And he decided to see a therapist for the first time in his life. And with advice from various friends, he picked a therapist who had a Buddhist spiritual orientation. And he was told by the secretary, the therapist's secretary, that it would be very helpful if he brought some symbol of his problem, some symbol of his concern with him for the first appointment, his first therapy session. So he arrived at the therapist's office toting a huge load of baggage of all different colors and all different sizes. And he brought them in and he set them, this is true, he set them down in the waiting room. And then he went out to his car and he got another huge load and piled it up on top of the first load. And he told me that he had to go around collecting baggage from all of his friends and his family members because he didn't have enough baggage of his own. I don't think he needed therapy, actually. But. <laughs> so when it came time to go into the therapist's office, he, of course, took all of his baggage with him and set it down. And at some point during this first session, the therapist, in her wisdom, just simply asked him to open up all the baggage, which he did. And there wasn't anything inside. I actually don't know if he ever went back to see her again. But <laughs> When we begin to taste the truth of no self, when we touch this simple reality, there sometimes can be a, at first be a poignancy, and then maybe a sense of measureless beauty being entered into. And often there's a feeling of a great relief, like finally putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize that the load, begin to recognize the load and recognize its nature and just simply set it down. There's a teaching story of a woman who had practiced for many, many years and had some very powerful and even uh, expansive experiences and a number of quite illuminating insights, but she still felt like she hadn't really reached her goal yet. And she was getting up in years and feeling that there wasn't very much time left. And she so very much wanted freedom in her that lifetime, in this lifetime. 
So she decided to take herself up to the top of the mountain to see the wise one that she'd heard was able to turn the mind, was able to turn the heart to the truth. As she was nearing the end of her arduous hike up the mountain, an old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her on his way down the mountain. And just as he passed her, the woman called out to him. And he stopped and he turned around and he turned towards her. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived up on the top of the mountain. And she explained that she was on her way up to see this being because she wanted to know the deepest truth, the ultimate wisdom, so that she could really fully awaken in this very life. And she explained that she wanted to awaken and to be liberated from all of her confusion, all of her anguish, all of her striving. And she told the old man that she'd heard that this wise one at the top of the mountain might be the one to reveal this to her. So the old man stood still, and he looked at her briefly. And then, taking his time, slowly he turned around and continued walking down the mountain for a few steps. And then he stopped again and briefly stood still, and then he slowly turned around again, facing the woman. And he very carefully took the satchel off his back and slowly and carefully set it down on the ground and then turned around again and walked on down the mountain towards the village. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? Therein lies the potential of peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as it's appropriate. We keep looking, we keep seeing, we keep living life. And in fact, living life more freshly, more fully, in the here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And so there are two wings of awakening with which we fly free. The wing of wisdom, the liberating equipoise of unfettered, pure awareness in relationship to all the phenomena that arises and passes through the six sense doors. This liberating wisdom that comes about by our experiential insight into the emptiness, the empty essence, the not-self nature of all things. And the other wing, the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, of all things. 
this being the relative aspect of understanding no-self. This wing of freedom, the wing of compassion, is that which connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness and informs the way we be, informs how we act in this world. To really, truly fly free, we need both wings. I'd like to close the talk with some words from the Buddha. This is from the inspired utterances of the Buddha, a little book called the Udana. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus you should see that indeed there is no thing here. This bahia is how you should train yourself. Since bahia there is for you in the scene only the scene, in the herd only the herd, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, and you see that there is no thing here, you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this, nor in the world of that, nor any, in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And then we'll sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.